And the title of the sermon is God's Great Patience. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Your turn, Carl. The post-it note with my writing on it up here. There you go. Weird. What are they? Does anyone know what they are? What those the plant is? What is it? Red currants. Okay. Can you? Can you really? So I was wondering, because holly, like proper holly, is is poisonous. I think is that right? Yeah. I was thinking. I hope kids don't eat those if they're poisonous. We've got that cleared up. Well, I've been reflecting uh, this week uh, on lots of things, uh, like I always do, but uh, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is how many things I've learned through songs. Uh, You know, when we're children, we learn the alphabet through song. Uh, when When I studied Hebrew at Bible College, we learned the alphabet through song there as well. Uh, and the, you know the teacher would call the response with the teacher, Aleph Bet Vet, Aleph Bet. Anyway, and um, uh, and that's how we learned the alphabet. And still, when I'm trying to find words in my in my Hebrew dictionaries, I, I sing the song to myself. I'm standing at my bookcase, thinking, "All right, where's Vav?" Uh, and uh, you know, to work out where it is uh, in the book. Uh, there's so many things, aren't there, that we learn growing up through song. Uh, I, uh, I thought of some other things that I learned growing up through song. Uh, I learned that the Autobots rage a mighty battle to defeat the evil forces of the Decepticons. Uh, I learned that Captain Planet, he's a hero, going to take pollution down to zero, going to help them put asunder the bad guys who like to loot and plunder. Uh, you know, we learn so many things through, through song and we learn without even knowing it. I mean, who sits down to learn the words of Transformers or Captain Planet? But we just, uh, we learn things so naturally and through, so easily through song. Uh, there's lots of other important things that I've learned through song as well. I learned uh, from a very young age, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Uh, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing 
my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. And in later years, things like, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God, not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. A friend of mine used to always say that most people learn their theology through songs. When it comes to the, to the crunch time in their lives, it's songs that they remember. Uh, I remember a little while ago I said something and I was wrong. Uh, can you believe it? Uh, and the person who corrected me, corrected me through a song, through the words of a song. They said, but what about the song? And they were right. It's a great exercise, I think, uh, to, to go through our lives and to think about all the things that we've learned through songs, all the Bible truths that we've learned through songs. Maybe uh, you can do that lunch a- afterwards to, to, to reflect with each other on all the great Bible truths that you've learned through song. And Psalm 78 is, is really a song that was written to teach. I mean, all the Psalms, I guess, uh, were written to teach, but this one in particular was written with that specific emphasis. You see that right from the beginning in verse 1. O oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. We've heard and known what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Psalm 78 is trying to teach us something. It's trying to, it's trying to keep teaching something. It's trying to perpetuate the memory of something, the truth about something. So what is it trying to teach? Well, first of all, uh, Psalm 78 is trying to teach us about the depths of human rebellion against God. So look at verse 8. The purpose, uh, according to verse 8, is that they would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. It's helpful, I think, to get a picture of what's going on uh, to read a little bit more of the psalm. So uh, I just want to read a little bit more uh, starting from verse 9, so that you can kind of get the picture of, of this rebellion against God. So verse 9, The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the desert? When he struck the rock, water gushed out and streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us food? 
Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was very angry. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. He let loose the east wind from the heavens and led forth the south wind by his power. He rained down meat on them like dust, flying birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp, all around their tents. They ate till they had more than enough, for he had given them what they craved. But before they turned from the food they craved, even while it was still in their mouths, God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility in their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. You see, the the, the pattern that is already beginning to emerge in this psalm, God did great things, God rescued them, God did wonders, He, he parted the Red Sea, he brought them out of Egypt, he gave them food from heaven. And yet time and again the people rebelled against God. The uh, exact uh, nature of their rebellion is explained uh, a number of times. Uh, in verse 8, they were stubborn and rebellious. Their hearts weren't loyal to God. Their spirits weren't faithful to him. Or verse 22, they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Uh, or verse uh, 32, in spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. Their rebellion was despite God's power, despite God's evident power and despite God's evident miracles. The failure of these people was a failure to trust God and a failure to believe God. Uh, Their unbelief wasn't like uh, the centurion uh, who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help me overcome, overcome my unbelief. Their unbelief was antagonistic. Uh, Look at verse 18. Uh, In verse 18 it says, They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the desert? Uh, Do you see what they were doing? They they were saying to to themselves, What do we want? We want food, that's what we want. How can we get food from God? I know what we'll do. Uh, We'll pretend that we don't believe that he can give it. Can God give us food in the desert? You know, oh, I don't. I don't think He can do it. You know, do you think He can? No, He can't possibly do it. They were trying to manipulate God into giving them what they wanted. It wasn't that they didn't believe that God was powerful. It's that they were turning God from uh, a great and powerful God to a great and powerful genie in a bottle 
who would do what they wanted. They would rub the lamp and God would give them what they wanted. The belief and the trust that God desires is not just a belief that God exists. It's not just a belief that God is powerful. It's a belief that God is God and that we're not. The failure of these people was a failure to surrender their lives to God. To look at God and go, God is powerful, God is majestic, God is God, God take my life. My life belongs to you. The problem of the error that they faced is just as real for us as it was for them. In fact, it's more profound for us. We've seen greater things. We've seen, uh, we've seen Jesus born into our world. We've seen sin conquered. We've seen the chains of death broken open. We've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on men and women, young and old. We've seen the Gospel go to all nations. But the question is, having seen those things, are we willing to surrender our lives to Jesus? So the great, the great challenge of Jesus' ministry was not just, here is the Messiah with great power to rescue us from our sins. The challenge of Jesus' ministry was, follow me. Is Jesus just your slave who you manipulate into getting what you want? Is he the great genie in the bottle? Or is he your master and lord and saviour and king? So the psalm paints for us, first of all, this picture of the depth and the depravity of human rebellion, that God could do so much and yet instead of responding to him in love, we respond to him by trying to make him our slave. That's the first thing. The second thing that the song teaches us is about God's great patience and forgiveness. Although uh, throughout this psalm, God acts in wrath against his people, his wrath is constantly moderated by his mercy. So if you look at verse 18, uh, again, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the desert? When he struck the rock, water gushed out and streams flowed abundantly, but can he give us food? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was very angry. Fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. So there you are, that God's anger is rising up against the people because of their unbelief. But then look at what it says. Yet he gave a command of the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. In other words, God's first response, God's initial response is anger and wrath and judgment. But then that's moderated by mercy. He gives them what they want. They test him, they ask for food, but in the end he gives it to them. God has, if you like, two responses to the unbelief of Israel. The first is anger. 
But then the second is mercy. Look at verse 37. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. So the psalm shows us not only this recurring pattern of rebellion against God, but also this recurring pattern of rebellion being met by judgement and wrath and rebellion then being met by mercy and kindness. As the psalm goes on, it seems as though judgement will win. Uh, As you get to the end of the psalm in verse 56, you get the final cycle of disobedience where it says, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes Uh, Like their fathers, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was very angry. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among men. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendour into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men and their maidens had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword and their widows could not weep. Historically, uh, those events that the psalm is talking about are at the beginning of the book of Samuel where the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and Eli the high priest and his sons are put to death. Uh, And at that time of it, in Israel, it looked as though God had abandoned the people. Things were black. But at the end of this psalm, you get some of the most shocking words in the Bible. You almost can't believe that they're spoken about God, but in verse 65 it says this, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine, He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. You see, despite the the never-ending cycle of rebellion and despite the judgement that was coming on the people because of that, this psalm doesn't end with judgement but with mercy. God's patience with his people is almost unfathomable. And yet we find that such a hard concept to grasp. We find that such a hard thing to believe, don't we? We find it hard to accept that God's mercy is greater than God's wrath. Here's a good test uh, to see what you believe. What do you expect of what do you expect more from God? Do you expect more to receive God's wrath? or God's mercy. Uh, If you sin uh, and you confess your sin to God, what do you expect to be the result of that? Do you expect to receive God's discipline? Do you expect that your life will now be difficult? Or do you expect that God will forgive you and show you mercy? We find it so hard to accept 
that God's mercy is greater than his judgment. But that's the message of the cross, isn't it? The cross is the place where God's mercy triumphed over his judgment. It's not that God threw away wrath and anger and judgment. No, he held on to it, but he held on to mercy at the same time. But mercy triumphed over judgment and wrath was defeated and ended. Now God's mercy is greater than we can possibly imagine. Having said that, I think there are two wrong responses to God's incredible mercy. The first wrong response to God's mercy is to say, well, if God's mercy is greater than his judgment, that means I can just go out and do whatever I want. Doesn't it? I can just live however I want and I know that at the end of the day, God's mercy will triumph over his judgment. But that's exactly the kind of wrong attitude that this psalm is warning us against. You know, this psalm was written because that's what the people of Israel did. They presumed upon God's grace. That's the first wrong response. The second wrong response is to think, well, God's, God's mercy is greater than his judgment. Yes, I can, I can accept that. But it's too late for me. Yes, you know, for the most part, God's mercy triumphs over his judgment, but, but I'm too rebellious, I've sinned for too long, uh, there's no way back. Well, it's right to say that there is an end to God's patience, but today is the day of salvation. When Jesus comes again, there will be an end. There will be an end to the patience of God. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to find mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So Psalm 78 shows us the depths of human rebellion. It shows us that God's mercy triumphs over his judgement in the cross. But here's the thing that you, that you pick up as you read Psalm 78. God's mercy is not enough. God's patience and God's forgiveness are not enough. If there's one thing that this psalm teaches us is that God's forgiveness and mercy, they don't actually solve the problem. God kept showing patience and forgiveness and people kept turning away. I... uh, I watched the latest Batman movie the other night. Uh, I don't know if that's a good way to spend two hours and 45 minutes. Uh, but in it, it was, it was interesting, in it, the lady uh, who was Catwoman, I never thought I'd be using Catwoman as an illustration in a sermon, but the lady who was Catwoman, she was a criminal, right? She was a thief uh, and she had you know, this criminal record as fat, you know, as, as this, at one point in the movie, it's slapped down on the, on the table. Uh, and her dream was that her past could be wiped out. Her dream was that uh, her criminal record could be deleted, uh, that she could get a new identity and that she could start over. 
that she could start from scratch. And if she could do that, then her life would be different. It would be better. Everything would be okay. And as you think through so many movies, uh, that's exactly the message, isn't it? That you get this fresh start, uh, you get a new identity. You think of the Bourne movies, it's exactly the same. He wants a new identity. He wants to start from scratch. I read an article the other day about Les Mis, which is coming out, the movie is coming out in a few weeks. That the idea there, Jean Valjean, he's a criminal. Uh, this priest gives him uh, a new start and, and the hope is that if he can just take hold of this new start, everything will be okay. But in the real world, grace and forgiveness aren't enough. You see, this psalm oozes grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness are written on every page, on every line of this psalm. Time and again God forgave. Time and again God gave them a fresh start. And time and again, exactly the same thing happened. Without some new intervention, history is destined to go on endlessly repeating itself. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, it feels as though God's just about to give up. And verse 65 says, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skilful hands he led them. You see, what was the solution to the cycle of rebellion? The solution wasn't simply grace and forgiveness. That was part of it. The solution was to raise up David, who was a shepherd and who was king, to lead his people with blamelessness, literally, blamelessness of heart and with skilful hands. We know from the rest of the Old Testament, don't we? We know from having gone through these songs, these psalms over the last few weeks, we know that David didn't cut it. We know that he was a flawed man, that even though he led Israel well, it still wasn't good enough. We know that David had limited powers to shepherd his people in righteousness and love and faithfulness to God. But what this psalm does is it sets up the expectation of a shepherd king. A king who would be blameless and upright and who could lead his people in blamelessness and uprightness. And against that backdrop, against the backdrop of Psalm 78, Jesus comes into the world and he says to the people, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus dealt with the cost of our rebellion against God. He dealt with the the punishment. He dealt with uh, the judgment by laying down his own life to take away our sin. And having done that, 
He becomes our great shepherd king who can lead us in righteousness and holiness and uprightness. He leads us in a new way of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He shapes our lives to be lives of love for God. He makes us new people. He makes us new creations. You see, Psalm 78 sets up a profound question. And the question is this. Who can rescue us from the cycle of our rebellion against God? And the answer is Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we only have to look at our own lives to see a history of rebellion against you and unbelief. Lord, you call us to entrust our lives to you, to give our lives over to you. And yet, Lord, it's so easy to try to manipulate you and to twist your arm into doing what we want you to do. Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for not taking you at your word. Forgive us for not surrendering everything that we are and everything that we have to you. Lord, thank you that on the cross Jesus put away that past. He's put away our sin. He's put away your judgment. Lord, help us to trust in that. But Lord, thank you most of all that in Jesus Christ there's not just a new beginning but a new life, a new power, a new hope. Lord, we ask that as we fix our eyes on him that you would do what you have promised to do. Transform us into the likeness of your great Son. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.